Hi, my name is Kim Brooks. I'm the personal essays editor at Salon, and you're listening to Behind the Pros. Today on Behind the Pros, I am so happy to have with me an editor. You know I started out the series interviewing editors about specific work, and we're getting back to that today with Kim Brooks, who is the personal essays editor at Salon. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I've read several of the essays in the life section um, on Salon, and we're going to talk about those. I actually interviewed Sharice Tracy, who you published within the last couple of months, and we're going to talk mm-hmm. about that process. Um, but first, I just want to welcome you um, to Salon on behalf of us who read Salon, um, and many of us who follow it know that Sarah Heppola was the personal essays editor there, um, and you just assumed that position in September, so congratulations. Thank you. And Salon is uh, has headquarters in um, San Francisco, New York, and D.C., um, but you are actually remote, right? Yes, I live in Chicago. Um, yeah, so I work from, from home in Chicago. So what is your average day like? How do you divide your time? And because you are a writer, you write as well. You've got a book coming out, which we're going to talk about. How do you divide your time? So I am probably not quite as organized about it as I as I could be. But, you know, basically um, I have certain days when I try to focus on writing um, on my book or, you know, if I'm working on a particular essay. Um, but then the days when I'm working on uh, for Salon, I – you know, I sort of divide my day between reading submissions, um, reading new submissions as they come in, reaching out to authors I know or to people who have submitted pitches um, that seem interesting um, and sort of trying to find out more about those ideas. Um, and then working on pieces that I've already accepted, whether that means, um, you know, working on writing up some notes, some revision notes, or editing a piece with uh, a writer, um, thinking about headlines, uh, thinking about sort of how to frame a story. Um, You know, it's kind of taking a piece that I've accepted through the whole process between uh, the time the writer sends it to me and the time it goes up on Salon's website. So you have your own um, work that um, you do. You have a novel coming out called The House Guest in April, do you make a point to work on your stuff first, like during early in the morning, um, and how do you balance that? Um, is there like a set schedule besides, you know, you know, just some days you do it, uh, Salon, you know, more so? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And, I mean, some of it um, I'm you know, still kind of trying to figure out the best balance. But um, generally I think what works best is – to have a day or two each week that I is sort of devoted to working on writing, um, you know, where I can kind of immerse myself in the process, um, whether I'm revising my work or researching or trying to, to get a draft of something. Um, I find it a little bit challenging to kind of dive in and out of writing, um, you know, to sort of do that at the same time that I'm, 
I'm working um, as an editor. So I, I kind of try to protect that time and set it aside. Um, whereas when I'm doing salon work and editorial work, it's easier to sort of multitask, um, you know, to edit one piece and then to jump into a dialogue with another author and you have to kind of go back and forth. But I find that writing uh, d- requires a little, a different kind of concentration. So I think mm-hmm. that's what works best for me. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about your novel, The House Guest. I'm going to read a line from the write-up um, of the book. And uh, this is a, just one line. Set on the eve of America's involvement in World War II, the house guest examines a little-known aspect of the war and highlights the network of organizations seeking to help Jews abroad, just as masses of people seeking to escape Europe are turned away from American shores. And I just read that, and it, there's two things I thought. Like, one, okay, how timely is this, that, you know, we're in the midst of this same type of uh, – I don't even know what the word is, um, struggle with accepting refugees or not. Um, And then the second thought I had is that this is a movie, and I'm going to call it. (laughs) This is definitely a movie. (laughs) Well, that that would be very exciting. Um, Yeah, I definitely, you know, feel like there are points when I was writing when it it felt somewhat cinematic to me. so um yeah that that would be that would be very exciting. And I have a track record with this. Let me tell you Natalie Bazil, the author of Queen Sugar, was on earlier in the year and 3 days before this information was released, I tweeted that oh I read her book and it's I if ever there was a book that should be a movie, it's this one and then 3 days later she revealed that it had got picked up by Oprah so uh in the own network. So I'm going <laughs> to Two for two wow. on this one with yours. So, okay. Well, I'll have fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> when did you and when did you start writing this book? So I started writing. Um, gosh, it was probably almost five years ago at this point um, that I first started thinking about it and sort of playing with some different ideas. Um, it kind of originally started a very, very long time ago as a short story, which I wrote and published, uh, and then later kind of uh, grew out of out of that. But um, I was work- I've been working on it on and off for I was working on it on and off for about five years. Mm. And just the timeline, I, I think around five years ago is that the time when you first started freelancing with Salon. Yeah, you know it. It actually is, and you know, as I'm saying it, I'm realizing five years sounds like like a very long time. I also um, had two kids in that same time period, so um, and the, and that's sort of the way that actually my salon work started. Was you know um, I was working on this novel. I had these two babies fairly close together, and you know there were times when you know having very small children and being home with them wasn't really compatible or I wasn't finding it compatible with the really, um, you know, research intensive work of writing this novel. And so to kind of keep writing during that, during those days or weeks when working on the novel didn't feel possible. I started writing a lot about my life, about parenting, about my experience as a mom. 
um, and started pitching some of those pieces to Salon. So that's true. I hadn't thought of that, but that those two things did um, kind of, you know, they're very different kinds of writing, um, but they sort of developed side by side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in, and I'm, I'm trying to contain myself from going so far into <laughs> your background. There's so many things I want to, but you also have done like a number of fellowships um, and you are, you're a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, so part of me wants to know, oh my goodness, how did you do all this? And you find all this time, you know, to do these um, different things. And I want to know how that um, informed your your work. But I guess the short question that I can ask is, uh-huh. um, were you doing any of the, those things after you had your children and you started writing for Salon and, and still doing the fellowships and stuff like that, or had you kind of finished that part of "Quote unquote educational aspect of your training." Yeah. Well, I think most of the fellowships that I did, um, that I've done, weren't like fellowships where I had to, you know, go someplace for a year um, and you know do coursework or or do intensive teaching or anything like that. Most of the fellowships were just sort of offering support um, so that I could write. Um, so in that way, it was helpful, and it was extremely helpful, the, the support that I got. Um, you know, for example, there was a, a fellowship I got from the Posen Foundation, which was really helpful, especially once I had children and, you know, not only had to support myself, but had to, you know, actually, uh, you know, pay for child care if I wanted time to write and things like that. So um, some of those were, you know, in recent years, some of them, I I graduated from the workshop, but quite some time ago, Um, I graduated in 2003. Uh, So, you know, those different, those different um, fellowships were sort of spread out over the course of, of 10 years. And your own writing, uh, you, you write fiction, you write nonfiction, um, and, Last year, one of the essays that you wrote for Salon was selected as the number one personal essay of the year. And uh, that one, um, just the day I left my son in the car. Um, What I found intriguing about um, this piece is that the narrator seems to, you take a position, but it's not, you... Huh. How do I say this? The narrator is, is seems to be exploring and evolving like what they feel about this situation, and they never really come like down on one side or the other. But it kind of allows the reader uh-huh. to experience both sides of the argument. Um, uh-huh. I, and I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but I felt like I could see the narrator wrestling with both sides, and also myself like, hmm, what do I think? through the different, um, right. you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, and that, that was what I was trying to, you know, that was what I was aiming for. Um, I think on issues like the one that I was writing about, you know, about sort of parenting and parenting styles or, you know, judgment and parenting, the criminalization of parenting, issues like that tend to um, – I think a lot of people, when a lot of people write about them, there, you know, we are, people have very strong opinions, and people um, often become very entrenched in those, <clears throat> in those opinions. And 
I think that writing on those issues can sometimes be very didactic or strident, which is not very fun to read, you know, is not very compelling or, or interesting to read. Um, so, you know, the, the writing that, you know, I try to write in a style, I try to write essays that I would want to read, um, if that makes sense. And, you know, I like to read essays or um, books on, on controversial issues, but the ones that I think um, make the strongest impression on me are are ones that have a certain even-handedness, you know, that, that don't feel very, you know, didactic. Um, so, you know, and certainly I think with that piece it helped also that it was a subject that I felt somewhat conflicted about, you know. Um, on the one hand, I definitely felt like um, things had gotten out of hand with the way we sort of criminalize very common parenting behaviors. But on the other hand, you know, I've struggled with a lot of anxiety about keeping my kids safe and making the right decisions. So I could kind of see both points of view and was sort of working that out, you know, through the essay. Mm -hmm. And how long did that essay take you to, if you remember, um, how long did it take you to, to write? And did you know you were going to send it to Salon when you, when you had the idea to write it? Yeah, well, I knew I would um, send it to Salon because I had a, a really great relationship with my editor there, Sarah Hepla, and had worked with her on a number of other pieces over the over the years. Um, in terms of how long it took me to write, that was that's a that was kind of a strange case because uh, you know normally I get an idea for something and I sort of write it uh, fairly quickly um, if it's a short piece. But in this case, as the drama of the actual events was unfolding, I knew that it was something I wanted to write about, but I could not write about it while it was going on, you know, for for, for very practical reasons, legal mm-hmm. reasons. Um, I was under strict instructions not to write about what was happening. So I had to sort of wait and sit on it and ruminate and you know I was able to do some research to interview people to talk to people about these questions that I had um, to take notes but I couldn't actually write the piece for about I think it was about a year and a half after Hmm. it, it started to unfold so but ultimately I think that was a really good thing and I think that for a lot of writers and I'm definitely one of them having some distance from the material you're writing about can be extraordinarily helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the pieces that I'm sort of on the fence about as an editor, when I'm reading something, it'll be strong writing and an interesting subject. And I can kind of see the framework for an interesting story, but I'll have this sense that like the writer is too close to the material that they don't mm-hmm. really have quite enough perspective or distance to really deal with it um, as, you know, as in, in as complicated or sophisticated a way as they need to be dealing with it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so sometimes that, that space, can, having some space or some distance can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, and I'm maybe the answer is subjective for different people, but do you think that there's a certain time of distance that people need or does it vary based on how sensitive the subject is or 
Yeah, I mean, I think it totally varies. I don't, you know, I don't think I could say, like, there's a certain amount of time you should wait. Um, you know, I mean, I think the key, the key is sort of having enough, to, you know, at least for, like, autobiographical kind of, uh, you know, creative nonfiction, um, you know, first-person nonfiction. I think, I think often the key is to have enough distance that, um you know, you have some insight about what took place or hmm. some sense of, of how what took place fits into the lar- to some larger narrative. You know, that looking back, whether that looking back is a year or 10 years or whatever, but, you know, I can now see that such and such, you know, how, you know, some insight, some perspective that's very hard to have when you're kind of right in the middle of um, an experience or, or coming right out of an experience. Hmm. In terms of, um, you, you started out as a freelancer in 2011. How did you transition um, from, in, in you, and if you look at the your piece, um, I don't say, piece history, if someone goes to your page, you know, on Salon, um, they can see that, you know, the, frequency becomes, you know, the frequency of publication increases with them, and it's like you're doing something every couple months. Um, and so how did you transition from, I guess, uh, initially a just a first-time per, first freelancer to more frequent than to now being the personal essays editor? I started out by placing this one piece with Salon a number of years ago. Um, and I worked with Sarah Hebla on that piece. Um, and I knew right away that, you know, she was such a great editor for me. Um, you know, cause I, it wasn't, I had never really worked with, actually, I, now that I think about it, she may have been my first editor. Um, I don't think I'd ever worked with an editor before. And I sort of imagined, you know, an editor, someone who takes what you've written and who just sort of fixes it up or spruces it up, you know, or maybe makes a couple suggestions. Uh, but with Sarah, especially on a lot of those earlier pieces, it wasn't just a matter of her editing it. It was really like she seemed to know what kinds of questions to ask me to get me thinking about the material in a more interesting way. You know, she could kind of tell if I was like cheating my way into something or glossing over something that needed to be delved into um, you know, in more detail and sort of knew how to like draw out uh, those elements. And, and we had just a very good rapport. And um, so, you know, I, I, I actually like over the years, you know, if I would have a new piece that I was working on, sometimes there would be a part of me that would think like, oh, I should, you know, should I, should I, you know, spread my work around? Should I really try just to, you know, send these to new places just someplace new and sometimes I would do that but because I liked working with her so much and I felt Mm -hmm. like um, you know she was really able to help me with my writing I had a good relationship with her as an editor I would often just go back to Silicon so that I could continue to work with her Mm -hmm. Which which is now I think you know gave me something great to work toward um, now that I'm in that position of being an editor because, you know, now when I, um, that's sort of my goal is not just to find, you know, 
essays to publish, and obviously I want to find great essays to publish, but to also find great writers to work with. And, you know, that's one of the things, I mean, I've only been doing this for a few months, but that I'm really looking forward to the most is, like, finding writers whose work, you know, I really admire um, and developing editor-writer relationships with them that could kind of develop over time. What was the interview process like? Yeah, I don't know if I should. Um, I don't know if I should say too much, just because I haven't. Oh, you know, confidentiality. Yes, we understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so <laughs> we are going to guess, though, that, and I think people out there, people who are listening, can take away that um, we understand that in publishing relationships are everything, right? And I feel like um, people can listen to this and say relationships are everything and if you show yourself to be a good like dependable writer in a publication likes like who you are and you know your writing style and feel that you're a good match for them anything can happen absolutely yeah I think that's really true and you know it's uh, I feel like the the editor-writer relationship is I mean it really is a relationship Um, and you're this is ideally someone that you're working with so you know um, if I, you know, if, if I have a couple, two different pieces and they're both sort of, I'm sort of on the fence about them, but I feel like one of the writers is someone who I can really communicate with, someone who just that I want to work with, you know, um, that that's the piece that I'm going to go for. That's the uh, that's the person I want to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that it's really important to to sort of think about to think about it in those terms, or at least mm-hmm. for me it was. Now, about how many do you have a certain number of pieces that you have to publish weekly? I've looked. It seems like on average there are about four or five. Yeah, it it varies. It varies kind of week to week, and it's um, uh, but but generally, yeah, uh, that sounds about right. What do do you have on average? Do you know how many submissions you get like a week? Um, again, it, it sort of varies, but I mean, I'd say in terms of submissions, um, things that I don't go out and solicit, I, I think, you know, it could be anywhere from, uh, 80 to 150 mm-hmm. a week. Yeah. Wow. It does vary. And when you're reading submissions, how long does it take you to know if you're, I guess, first of all, to even get past the cover letter? Um, what are mm-hmm. some turnoffs right away that you're like, not even going to read the cover letter? Or do you do you go through a bad cover letter and give a piece, a first paragraph or two, before you know it's right or wrong for a salon? Right. Uh, well, it depends how bad the cover letter is, um, you know, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, um, you know, so I definitely try to at least look at all the pieces and, you know, I want to see, I want to see the piece itself. If the cover letter is, you know, really ungrammatical and just doesn't make any sense, you know, or seems like this person doesn't seem like they even know what salon is, you know, then, then I'm probably not going to bother to, to open up an attachment. Um, but, you know, if, if the cover letter seems professional, seems, seems at all uh, thoughtful, then, you know, I'm definitely going to look. And what was the other part of the question? How long does it take to read a submission? 
No, um, you know, are you turned off or turned on instantly in like the the first graph or two? If they haven't hooked you by the, you know, second graph, are you done? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely try to give everything, you know, uh, to to go because because sometimes I think, you know, starting an essay, the beginnings and endings are very challenging. So mm-hmm. there's definitely been cases where I read a, the I look at the first paragraph and think uh, this this is kind of a mess I don't know what's going on here, and by the time I get to the second or the third paragraph I can see oh no there's a very there's a very interesting story here they just don't they're not beginning it in the right place, you know so um, now that said if the first paragraph again just seems like you know it's just ungrammatical makes no sense I have no idea what I'm reading. Um, on, even on a sentence level, then I'm not going to probably uh, get very far. But but otherwise, you know, I I definitely want to read past, you know, just the polish level to see sort of what the story is that's being presented. You know, because sometimes mm-hmm. there will be a really great story and the, the writing itself, the prose needs work. Um, but often, you know, that you can work on. Um, it, it's harder if if the prose is perfect and polished, but there's no story. You know, there's mm. not a really a good story behind it. There's not that much you can do. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm always kind of looking for, for what's the story that this person is telling. Is this a story that I want to read? Is this a story that other people are going to want to read? When you are editing pieces that you've accepted, I'm just curious if you – print them out and look at them and edit them and send them and then like send the person comments and how do you, what's your editing process like as an editor? I don't personally do that just because um, I don't know, because I'm always running out of printer ink and (laughs) breaking my printer. And I think uh, I just, I, yeah, I'm not organized enough to, to do that. Maybe one day I could work toward that. Um, but no, I just look at stuff. I look at stuff on my computer. You know, I I open up documents and uh, I edit and track changes. Um, you know, I I try to separate out my actual edits from from notes, more general notes about you know questions I want to ask the author or comments. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, I think, I don't want to say it's one of the few, but one of the things that I noticed that's unique about Salon is that you can go to their staff page and see who the staffers are, who the editors are for that section and get the actual email address, um, as opposed to, you know, a submission form or something. And in terms of when someone is pitching you, are you, uh, would, hmm, good question. So would you be inclined or do you like to hear or see when people are commenting you or complimenting you specifically on your work or is it more that you want to hear people complimenting the work of the column or and what do you look for that shows that they get you know who you are or who your column is in a cover letter you mean yeah yeah. Um, well, I mean, of course, it's always nice to be complimented. Um, I can't <laughs> lie, but but really, um, what I'm, you know, what I'm looking for is not not so much that you know they're showing that they've read Salon. You know, I sort of assume if you're pitching something that you've you've read the site that you're familiar with the work. I'm more just looking 
at what what idea they're pitching, you know, at, at what they're presenting. So I think that, you know, knowledge of the site and appreciation of the site and the, and the section kind of comes across more in the actual material that you're sending. If you're sending something that, that looks like it's in line with the sort of essays that we publish. Now, I noticed, uh, before I ask you this, now, does Salon and I don't, I, does Salon pay uh, freelancers like essay for essays? We do pay we do pay freelancers. Yes. Oh wow! Hear that, writers. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I noticed that some of the essays the people use um, names which are in quotations, and even in your essay you write that uh, you think you use a quoted fake name for your son in quotes and you say, oh, this is not his real name. So is this the lines of process in general or or, uh, policy in general to only run essays like either with an acknowledgement that this is a fake name or the real name only? Right. If, if, if someone were writing under a pseudonym, we would always say that, that that was a pseudonym or that, you know, Mm -hmm. a name had been changed to protect someone's privacy. Mm-hmm. On and um, on Halloween this year, you published two like themed essays. Um, on I think it was a Friday and Saturday, or Saturday and Sunday. And is that something that you see doing in the future with upcoming holidays and events? Um, you know, I just think it varies, but you know, we usually do publish, uh, you know, at least a few essays each weekend. So. Um, I think it just depends, you know, mm-hmm. what what's going on at that time, what's going on in the news. Mm-hmm. So let's actually transition into talking about the style um, of the column. And I interviewed uh, Sharice Tracy, and as you know, a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about what, well, I was talking, I was asking what I thought I saw the difference was, so, you know, she's been in the mother load on New York Times. And um, I was, we were talking, I was talking about how I felt that the mother load, that it was obviously a shorter space and it was kind of more built on scene, in and out of scene, whereas the salon uh-huh. pieces, you have a longer, um, longer, uh, you know, it, it's longer and it's more kind of exposition and reflection. And then there's some reportage in there where people are quoting sources. So, I wanted to hear, and the pieces also seem to hinge on some social commentary, either with it subtly or overtly. And I wonder, I guess the question is, one, is that an accurate assessment of what you see the column is as far as the style? I mean, and there are scenes, but it's usually, ones I've read seem to open with a scene and then be very, um, mm-hmm. you know, more exposition. Right. Um, you know, I'm I'm open to all different kinds of styles and structures. I think that it really the, the the style and the structure have to serve the piece itself. And mm-hmm. in that in that piece, I agree. I really I I think that the, the material, the voice was served well by that sort of alternating between exposition and scene. Um, but certainly, there, you know, there are some pieces that sort of lend themselves to more scenes so that are more dramatic, and there are others that are more reflection-driven, voice-driven. 
Um, you know, and, and I think it really, you kind of have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. But in general, I do, I mean, I, I think, yeah, much of the stuff that, that we publish, that much of the, many of the essays that I like do have some kind of mixture of both scene and summary or scene and exposition. Mm-hmm. And what drew you to Sharice Tracy's essay? Sharice Tracy's essay, I mean, I thought, you know, there were two things. I think on the one hand, first and foremost, she just, it was an incredible story, you know, and it was very harrowing um, and upsetting, but also in the end moving story. And I, I was drawn also to, you know, how it's this story of this horrible thing that happened to her um, and this horrible thing her father did. But at the same time, it's really a story. It's not just about this awful, harrowing experience she had. It's also really an essay about her relationship with her mother and her kind of her quest over time to be able to forgive her mother for not protecting her and sort of create a relationship, sustain a relationship with her mother whom she loved. Um, so I, I really liked that. That was, you know, I I feel like I read a lot of essays about really terrible things happening to people. Um, but that, to me, that was different, you know, that it wasn't just about the harrowing, harrowing experience, but it was also about a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, you know, there was the story and then also just the writing itself. Um, I, I thought was handled very, very beautifully. Um, that it was just a well-written piece. Mm-hmm. And then also I should say, Sorry, and I was just going to say, and then in addition to that, one thing that made that piece great to work on is that Sharice was just a great writer uh, to work with through the editorial process. So, you know, she was very responsive to my to my thoughts, my ideas, um, and so that made the whole process, you know, very, very easy. Um, and to your point about distance, when I interviewed her, she actually said that she had been working on that piece for years. Uh, prior to sending it to you. so But even though she said she feels like it's not still quote-unquote done because she's still living the story, um, that distance that you spoke of, you know, I, I'm, I'm remembering that now um, as you talk about her essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I Of course, and that makes sense. Like, we're all, we're, I mean, if we're still alive, then we're still kind of living out all of our stories, right? Um, so, sort of a story is done when we choose to end it. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's one of the, the most important decisions a writer makes is sort of where does a story start and where does it end? And, and that those decisions sort of almost determine what the story is, right? Um, whether a story has a happy ending or a sad ending, you know, what the meaning of the story is depends on where you end it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great example, though, of something where, you know, she was probably able to write that so so well because she did have a lot of distance. And you did say that you publish a variety of different styles of pieces, and one of them that I read is an example of that. I guess it's, I would... I guess I might categorize it maybe as a lyric essay a little bit. It is the one um, my rapist asked me to pray for him. I did what it took to stay alive. 
Um, and mm-hmm. that's where mm-hmm. it's in the Roman numerals divided into sections, I think maybe five or six right. sections. And one right. of the notes that I had is, um, and I wanted to see if this is what drew you to the piece, I noticed immediately the voice and control that the writer had in that piece besides like the lyric form. And I wondered if that's what drew you to it. Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the things that I remember. It just had an extreme, again, you know, an incredible story, but also the voice was so controlled, um, so powerful. um, And really I felt like the voice was in control of the material in a way that was unusual. So, yeah, definitely that was the draw for me with that one. Mm-hmm. And that piece does um, something that I think a number of them do. Um, and it, they build, and I was just actually flipping because I was like, oh, I should say the writer's name of that piece. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Where am I at here? I think it's, uh, is it Laura, Laura Nodden? Yeah. Yes. Laura Naughton. Um, and so I noticed that this piece does something that I think happens in several of them as well. And it seems like they build to a note of understanding or a turning point in 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 the narrative. And the line that hit me as that was when Lara writes, I'm doing it even now. It had to be pointed out to me that term, quote, offender, quote, perpetrator, quote, victim, quote, sur- and sur- quote, survivor turn individuals into one-note archetypes. Each of us is a multidimensional person who is more than the worst we've ever done and more than the worst thing that's been done to us. And, that, you know, mm-hmm. that really hit me as one of the, the turning point in the piece, um, kind of building to that. And I wondered if, do you think, is that be, does that happen organically on the part of the writer because that happens in the columns and they've picked up on it? Or do you guide them to that in the editorial process to making sure that they have that sort of, you know, hook or not hook, but point of understanding or turning point? Right, right. Um, You know, again, it's hard to generalize, but I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when people read an essay on Salon or maybe when they read an essay, a lot of different places, sort of that, that, that's one of the things we're looking for when we read essays is, is is not just a story that entertains us. There's certainly, you know, that we, we want that. We want to be entertained. Um, but, you know, something that sort of takes a piece of writing to the next level is that if it, if it, in addition to entertaining us and holding our attention, we also feel like we're learning something or that the writer is learning something or that the writer is trying to understand something to gain mm-hmm. some insight um, into their experience. Um, you know, and I just think that that's, you know, it's not like um, that's a formula and I, you know, looking forcing pieces to sort of fall into that formula, but I just think that that's sort of something that really good nonfiction writers uh, sort of m- many of them sort of do instinctively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, and certainly it can be, you know, there are times when people, there really isn't enough of that insight or reflection. And then there are times when it feels overdone, you know, you don't want, you don't want an essay to feel too 
too neat, too, you know, tidy, like it's all it's all being packaged and delivered to the reader, um, to, you know, in terms of meaning. And I think, think there's that, that sort of sweet spot of resonance and ambiguity that, that uh, at least me personally as a reader that I'm and an editor, I'm, that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, in the essay, my doctor told me it was all in my head. I might have died if I believed him. Um, the intro of it starts in present tense, and then there's a backstory because there's an explanation of the medical history of this narrator. And I thought that it did a really good job of parsing a lot of information that probably could have been complicated and overwhelming and, like, too much. Like, how much do you include? Um, so I was mm-hmm. curious um, if you worked with the writer on the organization of that, uh, and if so – or and if not, like how do you approach mm, helping writers parse out how much information they need to include, maybe in an opening or to give a backstory versus what they don't need to include? Right. Well, I mean, I guess my general rule is, uh, or rule sounds too rigid, but my general kind of guiding principle is that. Research or information for, for a personal essay, research or um, you know interviews, sort of the outside outside information is most effective when it when it when it kind of flows naturally from the story that's being told from the personal narrative. Um, so in sort of the the places where it would be it would seem natural to reach beyond one's experience for information, you know, or opinions of other people. Those are the places that I think it, it works best to sort of bring those other voices in. Um, if, it, if it doesn't seem to really connect in an organic way to the personal story that's being told, then I think it can feel extraneous or it can feel like it's weighing down the essay. So, and mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously all of this is, you know, very subjective, but I, I think that's sort of what's going through my head as I'm as I'm reading and thinking about you know what needs to be cut, what needs to be added, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the topics, uh, if I'm gonna scroll down and I wrote down some like little summaries of uh, some of the articles that I read. Um, so, woman clarifies her detest for babies, right? So this is sort of making the social comment commentary on child-free or child-less. Woman wrestles with social stigma of abortion. Woman realizes um, unconscious bias affected her treatment um, by a male doctor, you know, for as as towards women, treating women differently. Um, A woman Uh reflection on leaving the Mormon church and disowning um, her gay brother. Uh, A vasectomy woman um, couched stories on vasectomy, couching a woman's willingness to help her friend shave his own testicles, we'll say. Uh, mm-hmm. A woman explores her brother's um, hollow, how her brother's Halloween death changed the holiday for her. Which for me, that was the quote unquote mildest one. In turn, maybe the the baby woman clarifies the test for babies, even though she wrote it in a way that was very provocative, right? So mm-hmm. I, I guess as a writer looking at these, and you think you have a quote unquote ordinary life, or oh, I don't really have anything like hard-hitting or provocative like in the so some of the the essays there's the one about the guy who's a pedophile and he hasn't acted on it but he writes about 
you know, this, this illness or whatever. And, you know, so they're so heavy, you can't necessarily sit down and read a bunch of them at one time. Like they're so intense, you know what I mean? And so I guess the Uh question is, um, is there space in that column for, um, do, do you have to have a hard hitting provocative story in order to get into the life stories column? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I don't think that there's just one kind of story, you know, that we're looking for. And I think it's a mix. Like, there's definitely ones that um, are more provocative. Um, but I think, you know, you, if you if you look at all the stories, we also do pieces that, a lot of pieces that are about relationships that are about families, that are about, you know, parenting, um, uh, that are about body image. Um, I do think what all of those pieces have in common, though, is that, you know, if you're going to write, if you're going to write about something that might not seem that out of the ordinary in terms of, you know, the experience, it's important that you're looking at it in a new or interesting or provocative way. If that makes um, if that makes sense, you know, um, I'm just I'm trying to think of stuff I've done recently. Like, um, for example, um, you know, there was one piece. Um, there was one piece about um, a parenting piece that ran a few weeks ago uh, by Stell Erasmus, um, and she was sort of talking about the challenges that she faces as a, a woman who had. Uh, a daughter when she was a little bit older and sort of as her daughter gets gets older and more independent, her parents who lived near her and who she was close with were becoming less independent and, you know, had some age-related health problems. And, you know, so she kind of writes about struggling to balance those two um, desires to be a, a good mother, to be a good daughter and like if you think about it that's not that's not an unusual experience you know that's something that I think a lot of people probably deal with um but what I liked about that piece was that you know she was thinking about it in a critical way she was thinking about it in a kind of provocative way like are we putting reasonable pressure on women as individuals to sort of be everything to, to, to take care of our parents as they age, to take care of our children often without a lot of community support. Um, so, so does that make sense? So it's, it's not mm-hmm. that the story has to be so dramatic and, and harrowing and, um, you know, um, intense though, certainly plenty of those stories, um, can be can be really powerful essays, but if it is something more commonplace, it just the perspective, um, the voice, the the intelligence of the narrator has to be provocative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So I want to transition a little bit into something I'm going to call uh, Ask the Editor. <laughs> and okay, uh, make, sure. make it all up as I go along. Um, but y- you've been on both sides, as most editors have, uh, as a freelancer mm-hmm. and as an editor. Are there things that editors did 
Um, or your what? Hmm, what are you doing? Are you trying? Is there anything that you're doing differently, or make a point, making a point to do that was your pet peeve as a writer? You know, pitching to editors, and now that you're in that position, is there anything that you are doing differently? You know, because you had an experience, and oh, I'm not. You know, I'm going to make sure when I'm an editor, I'm never going to blah or you know what I mean. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, well, the one thing does jump to mind, uh, which is, you know, when I was a writer, or exclusively a writer, uh, I was just I very, very impatient. Um, I mean, I suppose I still am just kind of an impatient person, you know, but I would always sort of take it personally, you know, when it was taking an editor forever to get back to me or when I would submit something and it just seemed like it always took forever and it was very frustrating and difficult to wait. And uh, and now I now that I'm sort of on the other side of the desk, I'm, I realize that, no, it's not personal, you know, that, that I think most editors uh, have, you know, many balls in the air that they have just so much that they're sort of trying to get through and to read. And so I feel like, I mean, that sounds like kind of a commonplace thing, but I feel like being an editor has sort of made me more patient, you know, when I, when I'm pitching something, when I'm waiting for feedback, when I'm waiting for notes. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I also um, feel like it's just showed me how important like clarity is when you're presenting something, just having a, a clear, concise, straightforward uh, cover letter, um, just because now, again, I see sort of how much a typical editor uh, has on their plate, you know, how many submissions they can. You know, even if you hear that as a writer, it, it, it's sort of like it, once you experience it, it makes an impression. I sort of think, I was saying to a friend, it's kind of like, the feeling I've always had that if you're going to eat in a restaurant, you should wait tables at least once in your life. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's, it's just different. Um, But then it's the same thing. I feel like I could say the same thing about, you know, because I was just exclusively writing and freelancing for so long. um, You know, I also, I feel like I have some, you know, perspective or insight into, the challenges of putting yourself out there and putting your work out there um, and how much it means when an editor takes the time to, you know, to offer some meaningful feedback or to work with you on a piece to get it as good as it can be. So I try to keep that in mind too. I I definitely think, you know, it's really valuable um, in both writing and editing to sort of know and to think about what it's like on the other side. Okay, so my next uh, question actually ties into what you've just said about a patient. Sure. And I'm also an impatient person. So I have a scenario. Hmm, okay, so this is the part of the show where I launch into a long, um, complicated, and mostly irrelevant story about a horrible experience with an editor who keeps telling me, I will let you know, and she says this about once a month. So, I'm just going to skip all that, fast forward past that, and get to the real part of the question, because I I don't want to torture you like I did, Kim. Sorry, Kim. When's it okay? Should they just move on? Right, right. You know, well, I I think it definitely depends if 
you're already working on a piece with an editor or if you're just pitching something, right, that they haven't accepted. So, like, you know, if if a writer sends me a draft of something and I say, you know, okay, this is great. I, I want to send you some ideas for revising, you know, in the next few weeks or whatever, and, you know, a few weeks pass and they don't hear from me, I, I think it's completely fine to for that writer to, you know, say, hey, just following up, you know, just checking in. Um, I, I think that that's completely fine. Uh, and, and, you know, I appreciate the, the sort of reminder. Um, if it's something where you're just submitting and, you know, you don't know if they're going to take it, um, you know, I think like in the example that you just read, I mean, it seems like the writer would certainly have every right to, you know, send send the piece elsewhere if, if they just weren't getting um, an answer or weren't being responded to. And, and I don't really know. I mean, I think every publication is different. So it, it just really depends on the publication. And, you know, some places will give a rejection to every, every you know, piece that they don't want. Other pieces, I think it's uh, other publications, it's just assumed that, no, you know, no answer means no. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in general, I just think, it's a really hard business trying to, you know, do writing, do freelancing. And uh, it it just takes an incredible amount of perseverance and, you know, sort of, I, I, I mean, I know how hard this is because I've been in that position, but I think, you know, the more you can just keep writing, keep sending stuff out, you know, keep generating new ideas, new material, new contacts, the better off you're going to be, you know, that if you focus so much, and, and this is, again, one of those things that I realize is much easier said than done, but if you're just focusing so much on one piece, you know, or one publication you're waiting to hear back from, it's just going to be a lot of frustration and a lot of waiting. So it's sort of, I think, yeah, I think it's like the more a writer can kind of have in the air and have out there, the easier it is to deal with the inevitable, um, you know, waiting and and the frustration that we all have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay, my final question for you, Kim, is, as an editor, what is your editorial superpower? What do you do really, really, really well that could possibly save the world if you were a superhero? Oh wow, that that is a really hard question. What is my editorial superpower? So you mean like what is the thing that I do really super well as an editor? Is that yeah my understanding? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, I think it's definitely not correcting spelling. That's for sure. That's not my superpower. <laughs> uh, I I think it it's probably sort of the teaching process with with writers you know before I had this this is my first this is my my first major editing job but before I had this job I taught writing for about ten years um, both creative writing and composition at colleges, community colleges, um, and I loved it. You know, I loved that process, especially the one-on-one process, sort of mm. sitting down with, with a student or a writer, looking at the work, and sort of not not just 
not just making the words on the page better, but sort of helping that writer learn something from the process of revising or from the process of um, going through another draft. Um, I think that, I, I mean, I hope that I'm good at that. That's certainly the thing that I feel like I like the most uh, about the job. So yeah, I would say that, that that is my superpower. Well, it's that time. Thanks for rocking with me. Behind the Pearls Music is by UK artist Redvers West Boyle. You can find him on SoundCloud. The show was hosted and produced by me, Keisha Whitaker, in front of a live audience of a cat and a dog. Until next time, listen, learn, and write. <laughs>